folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. No matter which way you cut it, and no matter how you celebrate it, there is no doubt that Yule is a time of year steeped in tradition. Some of this will be unique to your own family. There's probably a long-standing reason why each person must have 14 sprouts on their plate. And some will be more generally known. Other symbols and motifs occur frequently, and are either timeless or have been changed and appropriated in other ways over the years. I'll take the Holly King over a jolly fat red-faced man hawking soft drinks to the masses any time. In my part of the world, in the county of Devon on the southwestern peninsula of the United Kingdom, there is a rich variety of Yule traditions as elsewhere. Some are well known and do not require further elucidation, such as the Yule Log or the Ashen Faggot but many more have been lost to general knowledge in more enlightened times. It is to those of us that seek out and record these traditions to prevent them disappearing altogether, the humble folklorists, that we must turn to keep details of these customs alive. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. As we enter into the final month of the year, I would like, for this episode, to look at Christmas, or Yuletide folklore and traditions. Many of you might be wondering why I've chosen to do this today, and not swap episodes with my normal guest interview on the 15th to bring this closer to Christmas Day. As you'll learn as we move on, traditions and customs at this time of the year are many and varied. The folklore podcast, like the people whose beliefs and traditions we discuss, is multicultural. Not everyone celebrates Christmas in the same way, or at the same time. Some do not celebrate it at all. Others follow very different paths. To change our normal order of shows, to bring this closer to the Western, Christianised date of Christmas, would essentially be to marginalise the beliefs of some of our listeners and the very folklore that we discuss. And so, we enjoy a little of this world's varied folklore of this time of year in the normal way. I hope you'll all appreciate this view. As I've just said, Yule beliefs, and I'm being careful to use different terms for Christmas in equal measure where I can, are very rich and varied. There is no way that, in the time we have, we could cover them all. 
So, I ask you to just enjoy learning of the ones that are included. And please, do share your own. Join the discussion group on Facebook, the Folklore Podcast Group, and tell us all what traditions are important to you at this time of the year. There are, of course, many traditional symbols associated with the Christmas, Yule or Winter Solstice celebrations. Most people don't give their origins a second thought. They're just part of this time of the year. But if we delve a little further into our history and culture, we may find much of interest, as is always the case with folklore, and why it continues to be such a rich and fascinating part of social history. In this episode, this is precisely what I've done with some of these motifs, drawing on folklore both from my own area of the country and from much further afield. Without a doubt, Christmas would not be Christmas without someone sending you an overpriced piece of folded card with a picture of a cheerful-looking robin emblazoned on the front, reminding you that you forgot to add that person to your list of mailings or similar yuletime ephemera. If you do indeed receive one of these, then you might like to point out to the sender how much ill luck is associated with this creature. It was considered unlucky in Devon for a robin to fly into your room and cheap. Furthermore, it was also considered unlucky to remove eggs from the nest of the robin, as it also was from the wren. Anyone taking the risk and doing so would soon find that those cows grazing in the area would begin to produce discoloured milk. There are associated rhymes with this law. Robin Redbreast and Jenny Wren are God Almighty's cock and hen. That's one old example. Another, which is more explicit in the description of bad luck, says... Kill a robin or a wren, never prosper, boy or man. To cause the death of a robin would certainly bring ill fortune, and you would also suffer should one die whilst in your hand. One story tells that this happened to a boy whose hand forever shook afterwards. Now, this was a fairly common old belief, and there are others connected with the hand that kills the bird. The Irish, for example, believed that a lump would appear on the right hand of the person who killed a robin. There are many variations within the folklore of the robin as to why it has a red breast. In Christianised versions, we know that this is said to be because the robin tried to remove the thorns from Jesus' head while he was on the cross, and some of the blood forever stained the bird's feathers red. In a different myth, the feathers were said to have been burned when the robin flew into hell in order to deliver water to the tormented souls there. Various folk tales tell other stories, such as the robin having been made a red waistcoat by other birds for whom he had collected crumbs during frosty weather. The wren has somewhat mixed fortunes. The bird was considered as sacred by the druids in Ireland who would divine using its song. However, the wren was traditionally hunted for many years around Christmas time. On what we now generally call Boxing Day, December the 26th, young men known as wren boys would kill as many of the birds as possible and parade the dead birds on a stick from house to house, receiving gifts of money for their trouble. In show eight of the Folklore podcast, we examined fire in folklore, and birds featured quite heavily in this, here too we have a connection between fire and the wren within the folklore of Breton druids. As with the stories at the start of my show on fire, this folklore surrounds the bringing of fire to the world as a gift for man. 
The wren was said to have brought fire from the gods, but as the bird returned to earth, its wings began to burn, and so the wren passed the fire to the robin. In this myth, the act of doing this caused the robin's chest feathers to catch fire, providing the explanation for the red breast. Of course, other traditional Christmas symbols appear on our greetings cards at this time of the year. One of the most enduring is probably the team of reindeer, headed up by Rudolph with his glowing nose, pulling Santa's sleigh across the night sky on his gift-giving mission. Like most symbolism of this period, the origins have a much older root. If we go back to the older religions from the European north, we may find that this motif is born out of the winter solstice, where it was the female reindeer who pulled the sun goddess's sleigh. The imagery is similar, but the gender reversal of the main characters is interesting. The female reindeer, unlike the male, does not shed her antlers in the winter, and so it is the female that is more properly that represented in our modern Yule imagery. In the old lore, the dear mother carried the light of the sun in her antlers. Far cry from a shiny red nose. The female reindeer has been ascribed great significance from Scandinavia across the northern hemisphere since early prehistory. She is the giver of life, and we may find antlers as a symbol on ancient stone carvings and altars, in clothing and jewellery, and often in headdresses, from magically significant leaders to calendar customs. The flight of the reindeer, rather than its travel on land, holds great significance. In legends from Siberia, this power of flight comes from the ingestion of hallucinogenic mushrooms, Amanita muscana, these are typically red, with white spots. Some suggest, probably apocryphally, that the traditional Santa costume comes from the practice followed by shamans in the Arctic of dressing in red suits with white spots when collecting these mushrooms, which they used when on visionary quests. These practitioners would deliver the mushrooms through people's chimneys as gifts on the winter solstice. We find these traditional Christmas motifs, red and white, flying reindeer and gifts through the chimney, replicated in other countries' old folklore. In the Ukraine, the antlered winter goddess Rosanitsa wore red and white. In Lithuania and Latvia, Sol, the goddess of light and the sun, was pulled by reindeer in her sleigh and threw amber pebbles into chimneys. The pebbles were symbolic of the sun, important at a time of year when nights are dark, before the seasons move to a time of rebirth. And, of course, the chimney connected to the hearth, the centre of the home. Hearths were, and are often, decorated with the greenery of the season, and one aspect of Christmas greenery that is very much used in modern times is the mistletoe. The sprig of mistletoe hanging from the ceiling has livened up many an office party, prior to the inevitable fun with the photocopier. But in Devon, it was a plant which had a more sinister association in bygone times. This parasitic bush, often found in oak and apple trees, was somewhat revered by druids, who called it the curer of all ills, and gave it a divine origin. As with many paganistic forms of witchcraft practice, which require great reverence of nature when using its elements in workings, there was much ceremony associated with the cutting of mistletoe by the druids, who used a golden sickle for the operation. 
Residents of Devon believed that the Druids cursed the county and forbade mistletoe to grow there, although no records exist to suggest why this should be the case. One story tells that a man owned an orchard which lay half in Devon and half across the county border in Somerset. The trees on the Devon side were said to bear no mistletoe, while those in Somerset had more than their share. Although he tried to cultivate the plant on the Devon side, it would never grow there. We must remember, of course, that the Druids have developed into something of a catch-all term when looking at the origins of folklore within paganistic roots, and so we probably need to be mindful of this. The bringing of greenery into the home is well recognised, of course, within pagan traditions at the time of the winter solstice, as in the dead of winter people look ahead towards the birth of new life in the spring. The use of a tree in Christmas celebrations is a very old one, but the actual roots of the practice, no pun intended, are very difficult to trace and will never truly be certain. It's certainly a lot more complex than the traditional Christianised explanations of more modern times, looking at the everlasting life that comes with belief in God. What we certainly can say is that going back to Roman times we find the fir tree being used to decorate temples at the time of Saturnalia, the festival honouring Saturn, the god of sowing. Again, we are looking forward here towards the time of planting in the new year. Saturnalia originally took place on December the 17th, before being extended to cover a longer period, extending towards our modern Christmas date. It was a time to visit friends, hold feasts and give gifts, typically wax candles, known as seri, or earthenware figures, sigillaria. For slaves, this was a joyful time, as tradition held that roles were reversed and the masters prepared the food. Additionally, one member of the family, which included slaves, would take on the character of Saturnalicious Princeps. In the modern, this might roughly equate to the Lord of Misrule, a figure that we may find still within our calendar customs and seasonal events. The exact time for the prevalent use of the decorated fir tree at Christmas cannot be placed, but it's probably around 1,000 years ago in Northern Europe, when they were often hung upside down from the ceiling rather than being placed on the floor. People who could not afford a real tree would often create one from wood, which they would then decorate with paper and fruit. These may be thought to be similar to the paradise trees which were used in medieval German mystery plays, traditionally performed outside churches on December the 24th. This date, now our modern Christmas Eve, was Adam and Eve's day, with the tree representative of that in the Garden of Eden in the biblical story. The first use of the tree at Christmas is claimed, and hotly contested, by two cities in Eastern Europe, Tallinn in Estonia and Riga in Latvia. The former claims 1441, and the latter 1510 as their year of first use. All that can be said for certain is that the trees were erected in the town square and danced at by the Brotherhood of Blackheads, a merchant association. After the festivities, the trees would be ceremoniously set alight, an act which we may suggest is paralleled in our traditions of burning a Yule log or ashen faggot. A picture in existence from Germany in 1521 shows a character following a parade including the tree, who's dressed as a bishop and may possibly represent St Nicholas. Many stories, of course, link the tree to the Christian Christmas traditions. One puts the first use of a decorated tree in the home of Martin Luther, 
a 16th century German preacher. He was said to have been out walking at night and saw the stars shining through the branches of a tree. This apparently put him in mind of Jesus, who left the stars in heaven and came to earth at this time of the year. Another possibility tells of St Boniface, who was born in the town of Crediton in Devon, a missionary who travelled to Germany to convert the pagan tribes there. His story tells that he came upon a group of pagans at the foot of an oak tree, sometimes referred to as Thor's Oak, about to sacrifice a young boy. Furious at their practice, St Boniface took an axe and cut down the oak, and in its place a fir tree sprang up. Everyone was, of course, amazed and instantly became Christians, placing candles in the tree so that he could preach at night. This story has an odd mix of content. The naming of the tree as Thor's Oak suggests an old heathen interpretation, and yet the human sacrifice aspect of the story does not sit well with the heathen community. Pagan, as a description, is also odd with a connection to Thor. How this tale came to be ascribed to Boniface and Christmas in this way can never be known. There is a third story, which is also set in Germany, involving a woodcutter who brings a lost boy into his house on a cold winter night and gives him a bed and food. In the morning, the household is awoken by angelic singing, and the boy has mysteriously turned into Jesus. The Christ child goes into the garden and breaks a branch from a fir tree, which he presents to the family to thank them for looking after him. And naturally, people have used fir trees ever since in remembrance of this event. There is no explanation as to why Jesus, able to turn water into wine and perform many other miracles, would consider that the branch of a tree was a suitable gift for the generosity of the woodcutter's family. The legend of St Boniface allegedly tells why candles became a decoration for the Christmas tree, and many other decorations that we use now reflect the various symbolic imagery of Christmas time. The use of tinsel is more interesting, and has its roots in a traditional folk tale which can be found in various countries, from Germany and Eastern Europe, where they most likely originated, to the Scandinavian countries and beyond. All of the versions of the folk tale are similar in their main details. A family has a tree in their house for Christmas, but they are too poor to be able to provide decorations for it. While they sleep overnight, a spider weaves a web over the whole tree, and when the family awake on Christmas morning, the web is miraculously turned into silver and gold threads. In some versions of the story, it's the morning sun which exacts this change. In others, it is a traditional Christmas character such as St Nicholas. Because of this story, it's considered good luck in some countries to discover a spider living in your Christmas tree. We've mentioned a couple of times already the use of candles at Christmas, and seen the emblem of light linked to pagan traditions of approaching a time of rebirth, both in the decoration of the tree and in the deer folklore. We find as well the tradition of the Yule candle, both on its own and within the Advent crown, hung from many ceilings at this time and in more modern symbolism linked to the Christian ideas of this time of year. Folklorist Christina Hole speaks of the older traditions surrounding the Yule Candle in her writings. Within the folklore of the time, the burning of the Yule Candle can provide both good fortune and ill, again linking to traditions of fire and the flame which we've covered in a previous podcast. 
a steadily burning Yule candle was said to bring good fortune to the household in which it burned. However, should the candle be put out too soon, or be accidentally extinguished, then it was a sign of death or bad luck in the coming year. In some households, the task of lighting or snuffing the candle lay only with the head of the house, that is, the oldest member, and the bad luck would extend to anyone else who touched the candle once it was lit. The manner of snuffing the candle was also important. The flame must be extinguished only by using a pair of tongs to snip it out. Blowing the candle out would again bring ill luck upon the house, or the person doing so. Once the Christmas period was over, the candle would become a protective charm used to ward off evil, and so it would be retained in the house for the following twelve-month period before a new one was lit the following Yule. These traditions extended still further in other countries. In Denmark, for example, the candle would quickly be relit during a thunderstorm in order to prevent the house from being struck by lightning. In Sweden, farmers would smear their plough with tallow from the candle before the spring ploughing took place. The act of doing this was said to hallow the soil, meaning that the seeds would prosper in the coming year. Again, we find these links with the approaching season of growth and new life, which was so important. Many calendrical customs exist in Devon for foretelling future events, often surrounding love and marriage, and Yule had its own of these. If you wished to know whether you were to be wed in the forthcoming year, then all that was required was to keep chickens. On Christmas Eve, you should approach your henhouse and tap on the door to rouse the birds. If the first of these to make a noise is a hen, then you will never marry. But if the cock should crow, then luck is on your side and you'll be wed before the end of the next year. One lost calendrical celebration from Yule time in this county is that of the Giglet Fair. In many Devon towns and villages it was the custom on the first Saturday after December the 25th for females who wished to be hired as domestic staff to be exhibited in one of the local fields. Those residents who required servant girls would then be able to inspect those putting themselves forward and choose any that they deemed to be suitable. This event was always followed by the Giglet Revel. In the town of Oakhampton, on the edge of Dartmoor National Park, bachelor men were allowed to approach and court girls without the ceremony of introduction, an operation which frequently led to successful proposals of marriage but a few weeks later. It is quite common in local folklore for rhymes to be recorded which pertain to particular beliefs. Everyone apparently dreams of a white Christmas, but Devon had its own weather law based around the timing of the big day. If Christmas Day on Monday be, a great winter that year you'll see, and full of winds both loud and shrill, but in summer, truth to tell, high winds there shall be, and strong, full of tempests lasting long, while battles they shall multiply, and great plenty of beasts shall die. They that be born that day, I ween, they shall be strong each one, and keen. He shall be found that stealeth aught, though thou be sick, thou diest not. We also know that traditionally we should be removing our decorations before Twelfth Night. These days it's considered bad luck to leave them up, but in Devon in years gone by, if you did not remove all vestiges of decoration before Candlemas Day, 
then it would lead to a far more sinister visitation than a sleigh-bound man down your chimney. Down with the rosemary and the bays, and down with the mistletoe. Instead of the holly now upraise, the bright green box for show. Or, if so, the superstitious find one tiny branch just left behind. Look, for every leaf there may be, so many goblins shall plague thee. So you've been warned. Make sure you vacuum up all your pine needles. These rhymes and suggestions of other visitors to the house lead us neatly to the final areas of Yuletide symbolism which we've got time to cover. We're all familiar with the image of Father Christmas, or Santa, growing out of the stories of St Nicholas in Western traditions. Many say that the traditional image of Santa was created by the Coca-Cola company for promotional purposes at this time of year. Now the roots and traditions are much more deeply rooted than that, as we've already touched upon in the shamanistic practices which we looked at earlier. It's more accurate to note that the image was certainly popularised rather than created as a marketing tool. The different traditions and characters surrounding people who reward good behaviour or punish bad, or which encompass the giving of gifts at this time of the year, are many and varied around the world. We cannot possibly discuss them all, but we can take note of a few as we find very similar themes, as you would expect, within them. The Dutch equivalent of St Nicholas is Sinterklaas, obviously a name from where Santa Claus is derived. He is always accompanied by a character called Black Piet, Zwarte Piet, who was originally a slave. In more modern times, this character has been toned down due to the obvious overtones of racism and slavery from a black-faced character. He would take naughty children to Spain in a bag as a punishment. Now we should note an interesting naming link here with the devil in the form of a goat, Black Peter, found for example in the recent film The Witch looking at New England folklore. This idea of Santa having helpers to deal with the naughty children although not found in Britain or America, is common in other countries. In eastern France, Le Père Foutard is a character in a black robe who beats the naughty children. Legend says that he once murdered three children and has been bound to work with St Nicholas as an atonement for his sin. In Iceland, we find the Ogress Grilla, who emerges from her mountain cave at Christmas to hunt down the naughty children. The older mythology from the 18th century told that she would catch and eat bad children, but again this has been toned down in more recent times after a public decree forbade the use of the character as too frightening. In Scandinavian folklore, the Tomten bears the appearance of a kind of gnomic Santa. Described as around three feet tall, with a long white beard and wearing a conical hat often in red, the folklore has many links with fairy and fey folk in other countries, and its roots go back to ancient Scandinavian cults. It is similar in many ways to other Scandinavian whites. Originally a helpful yard spirit, it's become associated with Christmas as a gift bearer and is accompanied by a Yule goat. In this case, this is the Julebocker. There are a number of Scandinavian Yule goat traditions. Some are nicer than others. In Finland, for example, the Yule goat is the Jaulupuki. The puki element comes from the Teutonic buck, meaning a he-goat, 
although there are also derivations from the word puck, which links more with a mischievous sprite. Although in modern times this character has become quite conflated with the image of Santa, there are also elements where it is said to eat bad children, which puts it more in line with the traditions of Krampus. One of the fastest growing of the alternative characters at this time of year, as far as popularity is concerned, is undoubtedly that of the Krampus. This is becoming very well known amongst folk horror circles online, and the traditional festivals surrounding this character are starting to spread more widely around the world lately. Britain saw its first large Krampus festival in the last 12 months. The character has featured in cinema releases and is becoming more prevalent in other countries as well. The image of Krampus is that of a form of devil, half goat and half demon. Darkly coloured, with horns and fangs, he wears a chain and bells, and carries a bundle of birch sticks, with which he beats naughty children before putting them into a basket and carrying them off to the underworld to be punished. The name Krampus comes from the German word Krampen, meaning claw, and the character comes out of Germanic Christmas traditions which begin in early December, and the roots lie firmly within mythology. Krampus is said to be the son of Hel, from the Norse, and the character shares a number of characteristics with other Greek mythological creatures, such as the satyrs. The creation was as a polar opposite to the more familiar St Nicholas, with Krampus dealing with the bad side while he took care of the good. Within folklore, Krampus arrives the night before December the 6th, known as Krampusnacht in the German. December the 6th is also Nikolaustag, St Nicholas Day. On this day, German children will check the shoes or boots that they've put out the night before to see if they've been filled with presents if they've been good, or a rod if not. This directly parallels the Western traditions of hanging a Christmas stocking, of course. In some countries in more modern times, we find people guising devils in a festival known as Krampuschlauf, Krampus Run. This takes place as well as in Germany, certainly in Austria, Hungary, Slovenia and the Czech areas, and, as already noted, is spreading to other parts year by year. As with many of these more horrific motifs within folklore, Krampus was suppressed by the church and other organisations for a long time. The Catholic Church certainly did not allow such celebrations. During the Second World War, fascist parties would also have nothing to do with the idea of Krampus, because it was considered to be a creation of social democrats. Ironically, the rise of Krampus is partly due to the attitudes of people who believe that Christmas has become too stale or commercialised and twee in the modern world, and who prefer to seek out less traditional ways of celebrating. The rise of the character may mean that very quickly Krampus starts to be seen in the same way. I hope that this podcast has given you some insight into just a few of the traditions and customs at this time of the year. If you are seeking more traditional ways of celebrating, then maybe you have some more ideas to explore now yourselves. However, and whenever you choose to make your celebrations at this time of year, if indeed you do at all, then whatever you're doing for them, I hope that it brings you much happiness and pleasure. See you next time.
The Folklore Podcast is written and hosted by me, Mark Norman. You can follow my research and writing on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find out more about Melissa and her work at www.mdmcreate.com. Additional material for this episode was supplied by Heather O'Brien of The Heathen Underground. Like The Heathen Underground on Facebook for a wide range of articles of interest to listeners of this podcast. A supplementary e-magazine for this episode is available to download from the Folklore Podcast website. Click on Supplements on the Episode tab to find this and all of our other past supplements designed by Melissa Martell. Remember that Folklore Podcast patrons at any level receive all of our supplements as they are published, as well as other rewards. To become a patron from as little as a dollar a month and support the future of this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast or link from our website homepage. Please, continue to rate the show on your podcast provider, join our social media pages and share the episodes to help us to grow and develop. With your help, we can continue to educate and entertain our growing audience with these episodes. The Folklore Podcast theme tune is written and performed by Gerdy Bird. Thank you.